Welcome to Viva La Vulva, the podcast that explores and teaches about the goodness of the vulva. Here is your host, Dr. Kara Quant, an internal medicine doctor and advocate for female sexual health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Viva La Vulva podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara Quant, and I have a special guest on the episode today. We are talking all about mental health, which is such a big thing, black mental health. And I wanted to introduce my guest, Jasmine Lamite, to the podcast. She is a social worker and recently wrote a dope book that everyone needs to get, workbook, and it's called The Black Mental Health Workbook. Break the stigma, find space for reflection, and reclaim self-care. So thank you for being on the podcast today, Jasmine. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You could introduce yourself better than I can. So give <laughs> the audience a little bit more information about you. Sure. So my name is Jasmine Lamite. I am a licensed clinical social worker. Been in the social work field for almost 15 years. Uh, I've been working primarily with youth and families in the school systems in both Chicago and Los Angeles. I was the director of mental health for 24 schools in Los Angeles for the past five years, recently resigned, and I'm transitioning into a new position as a director of mental health for a nonprofit that works with foster youth. I also have an Instagram page called Social Work Sage, where I provide families, uh, mental health practitioners and schools with tips, resources, a little bit of humor to get through their day. And I also do a lot of public speaking and facilitating workshops on my free time, quote unquote. <laughs> and um, I'm a wife and a, a parent to a two and a half year old. And I do have to shout out your page, the social sage, social work sage. Uh huh. Social work sage, okay. <laughs> because you make the best reels. And I've always, I've been wanting to ask you about how to make a reel, but. Um, oh, yeah. We got to collab. Yeah. So we do have to collab on that. But yes, they're funny. They are yeah, very creative. So definitely check that out, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, maybe we can do one to advertise this episode. Uh, Ooh, joint reel. Yes, that would be good. Okay, I like that. <laughs> so let's jump into it. Your workbook, the Black Mental Health Workbook. What prompted you to write this? Yeah. Well, it's definitely outside of my comfort zone. I haven't written this many words probably since I was in graduate school, which was <laughs> over 10 years ago. So, you know, it was definitely, I enjoyed writing it. But what prompted me, I've been working with the Black community my entire career and wanting to give back to our community and my own experiences with mental health and what I've seen, how it's impacted my family. And I was contacted by a publishing company, actually, that follows me on Instagram. And they mentioned that they were looking for um, an author that could write a book on this topic. So I got over some of my imposter syndrome and <laughs> decided, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. I was in undergrad. I was a psychology and Black studies double major. So a lot of the stuff that I was writing in here were things that I had learned, you know, long ago and had been continuing to read up on and learn, you know, throughout my career. So it was really fun to actually like sit down and have time to like read articles and like studies, which I don't often have time to do in my practice because I'm just go, go, go. Uh, especially since the pandemic, I have just noticed even within my friends group, within my family, and then certainly in my work, 
just the increased need for mental health services within our community and seeing, you know, our people just feeling kind of stuck and not really knowing if therapy was for them or if mental health is something that even impacts us. So just a lot of misinformation and people kind of suffering in silence. So I really wanted to shed light on this topic um, from my own perspective, recognizing that we all come from different perspectives. Black people are not a monolith, right? There's no one way to have a Black experience. But to really, you know, be able to break some stigma and to provide a, a tool for people who are maybe not sure if what's go going on for them is normal, quote unquote, or if it's, you know, something that they need to get additional supports for. And I wanted to make it like really accessible. I thought about like, who is the audience for this? I thought about my friends. I thought about the parents that I've worked with over the years. So yeah, I just wanted to, to kind of shed light on multiple topics to give people just a, a brief understanding of what we face uh, in our community. Yes. And I am so happy that you wrote it. I mean, when I was reading it, I was just thinking like the uh, statistics that you gave were just mind blowing. I mean, and I even thought about, you know, my practice and, you know, being a doctor in an urgent care setting and seeing the patients that I'm seeing and mental health being such a big thing that isn't often addressed. Just like, you know, what is the, you give the the history about mental health and psychology. And, and so I think it's such a great workbook to read through. Thank you. Yeah, I was as I was writing it, I was like I said, I was thinking about my friends and family and the parents I've worked with over the years. And a friend of mine was like, you know, she's white, uh, but she's also a therapist. She's like, I think this would be really great for therapists that are not black. And I was like, I didn't even think about that. But that makes a lot of sense. If you're working with your um, non-black working with black clients, these are things that you definitely should know and be aware of. So I think it can be for anyone, regardless of your race um, or your profession. So hopefully, you know, it's a, a good resource for many. Yeah, I was going to ask that. So I'm glad that you answered it. Is this just for Black people? And it doesn't sound like it's just for Black people. Non-Black people can read this and can get a lot of important information from it. Yeah, yeah. I have, you know, friends that are reading it that are not Black and are learning a lot. Um, I have friends that are married to somebody who's Black, who are not Black themselves, who are, you know, just wanting to, who have like biracial children, right? So really wanting to understand more about our community. And so, yeah, it really is for anybody. Yeah. Okay. So what are the barriers and the stigma that exists within the Black community around mental health? Yeah, so there's definitely stigma. I have seen it getting better since I started my social work journey in 2008 in Chicago, which is where I got my master's degree. Uh, it's definitely getting better, but there still is a lot of stigma. You know, some of the things that I'll hear, for instance, if a student is referred to counseling in the schools, a parent is like, my kid isn't crazy. You know, you know, if somebody's feeling really down or depressed, oh, you just have a case of the blues. Uh, another favorite would be, you know, Black people, we've got, been through so much. Like, you can get through this. You don't need, like, a therapist or whatever, right? We've been through slavery. We could do, you know. So I, there's a lot of this, you know, mental health doesn't apply to us, right? Or, you know, mental health is for uh, mental illness or uh, struggling with mental health is for the weak, uh, which is completely just misinformation. Mm -hmm. And historically, it's by design, right? You know, in order for slavery to continue and um, for us to have not have all of our civil rights for so long the people in power had to frame it that we were so strong, we can deal with this. It's not a big deal. Like we were designed for these uh, stressful environments, which is mm -hmm. obviously not true. But 
over the centuries, we've ingrained that, that we have to be strong. We have to, you know, handle things on our own, which, you know, now as as time is progressing, we see the impact of that. Um, So definitely still stigma about just even recognizing or accessing mental health. And then once, you know, the person feels like, yeah, I really want to get some services, or I I do want to get some mental health. And there are, you know, barriers with access, you know, are there BIPOC therapists that are available in your area? If not, has that, you know, um, non-BIPOC person been trained in culturally sensitive or um, culturally sensitive therapy, or what's really happening within our community from our perspective? And I can tell you from my own grad school experience that you have to be really actively seeking those things out. A lot of grad programs for therapists don't address that the way that they should. Mm. And, you know, there's issues with being underinsured or not having insurance, so just many ways that kind of that things can get in the way of us seeking therapy. And, you know, just for myself as a therapist, I'm trying to find a therapist for myself over the years. I can see how challenging that can be. And I'm in the field. So I imagine mm-hmm. if somebody's trying to find somebody, it can be very overwhelming. And then you're just like, oh, I don't want to do it, you know. Yeah. And I would like to add uh, the mistrust. I mean, I feel like for I've heard it many, many times over where, you know, people come to see me, you know, uh, black patients that come to see me and they're like, well, I did not want to come to the doctor at all. I don't believe, you know, I don't like the healthcare system. I just don't trust it. And so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to seek the help that I may need because, I don't trust it. Even if yeah. someone looks like them, it's it's still a mm-hmm. mistrust from the past. Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of this, right? Within the medical field and within the psychology field of using the medicine and using psychology as a tool of oppression, a tool of harm, right? I think of the sterilization of Black women. Uh, I think of like the syphilis experiments, um, you know, all of those types of things. And even just some of the diagnoses that used to exist in the DSM. Uh, for Black folks specifically, all were a part of a design to continue to keep us oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also overdiagnosis of, in certain things like schizophrenia within the Black community, which is speaks to you know doctors and medical and psychologists, their implicit bias about behaviors that they see within us that they don't apply when they are treating non-Black clients. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's definitely valid concerns and it comes from somewhere, right? And so it's how do we navigate these systems that have not been designed for us and still be able to get the supports that we need? Yeah, yeah. Which brings me to uh, want to read an excerpt from the book that I thought was so well written. And it says, you turn on the news and see another white person has committed an unthinkable crime. They aren't criminal. It's mental illness, says the commentator. Uh, Privilege at its finest. But how is being called mentally ill a privilege? For white folks, the mental illness label acts as a get-out-of-jail-free card. The label changes the consequences and supports one may receive. It's mind-blowing that white people responsible for some of humanity's most heinous crimes are routinely given this excuse while Black folks are seen as dangerous, threatening criminals before we even made it to trial. Oof, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I read that like a couple of times. I was like, that is, it's true. I mean, you Mm -hmm. see the massive shootings that are mainly from white white (laughs) men And it's usually labeled as mentally ill, not that they're dangerous, but it's 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I read that a couple of times when I first read it. But I think the perception, whether, you know, intentional or not intentional, is that if a white person commits this heinous crime, there has to be some excuse. Like, what was their childhood like? That's, you know, that's an excuse for this. What are, you know, what other things might have happened to this person to make them do this versus with us? It's just because of the stereotypes that exist about our community. It's like, oh, this this checks out, right? Like, yes, we expect this to happen for this person to do this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which... You know, and it's frustrating. It's really upsetting when a tragedy happens in our country. Of course, we're impacted by that regardless of the community. And then to see, I I have to just turn off the news because I'm like, how long is it going to take for the news commentators to start talking about like the excuses for this person? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we can all say that uh, and agree that racism is bad. And -hmm. in your book, you also discuss the impact that racism has on mental health. Can you talk about how racism affects mental health? Yeah, yeah. So I think a common, you know, misunderstanding or misinformation is that racism is only, you know, the overt racism that we're all, you know, the KKK stuff or, you know, overt like violent crimes, which, of course, is racism. (laughs) But, you know, we often overlook um, or not, not we don't, society often overlooks things like microaggressions and the impacts that those can have. So just those subtle comments that, you know, might be one off, but can really, I mean, I think of some of the microaggressions I heard growing up and those like linger, they haunt you for mm-hmm. the rest of your life, right? You know, and that can happen in the workplace and schools all over the place. And then of course there's systemic racism. So the systems such as like the way that the mental health system is set up or schools or um, the you know uh, prison system, all of those definitely impact. And so, you know, when you're experiencing these things on a, a day-to-day basis, weekly basis, um, that can impact obviously your sense of self-worth, your self, um, sense of value and, and who you are as a person, which impacts your self-esteem and confidence. That also can lead to depression, right? Feeling hopeless, you know, of like if you feel like the world is against you or you're experiencing, you know, constant oppression, then you're going to be feeling like, what is the point, right? What is the point of all of this? Like, how can I, you know, be successful and thrive in this environment, and it also can lead to um, anxiety, right? Just constantly worrying about, you know, going into a new setting if you're starting a new job or having to walk into a place that, you know, may be majority white or majority non, um, non-Black. non And how do I walk into this space and feel safe? And um, mm. what am I going to expect, right? So those are things, you know, I think even us subconsciously think about, right? You know, if you're going into this new space, like these are things that we often have to do that other people don't. Yeah. I mean, like, how is my hair going to be for black women? You know, is mm-hmm. my, are my braids or my twists yep. or my, is that going to be accepted within the corporate, you know, setting or, you know, so I feel like. Yeah, yes, yeah, I know. And there's been even articles about, you know, workplaces that have banned certain type of hairstyles um, or schools that have expelled or cut kids hair at school. Like, can you imagine that? But that is racism in and of itself. And that is, it can be very traumatic, of course. Mm. Yeah. So getting to that, what is the difference between stress and anxiety? Um, Mm -hmm. And how can someone tell the the difference between the two? I think for better or for worse, we as mental health is becoming more of like a buzzword and more, you know, part of just like our dialect in our country. I hear a lot of terms that are just interchangeably thrown around. So like, you know, stressed or I'm anxious, right? So what is the difference? Like, so 
stress and anxiety, right? Having an anxious response is a normal response to an event that is stressful, right? Something that um, causes you worry or, yeah, causes you worry or causes you stress. So the key word there is it's a normal response. Like anybody, most other people would feel stressed out about this. So like you lose your job. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's going to be really stressful, right? You're going through a divorce. That's going to be stressful for most people, right? The difference then between, you know, normal stress and anxiety and like an anxiety disorder is that after this, you know, stressful event has passed, those symptoms of feeling anxiety or feeling stress don't go away. It's just this lingering kind of can even feel like a low tone that can get really loud at some times, but it's just this constant feeling of worrying about things that are outside of your control, you know, thinking about the negative and terrible things that can happen. And it also has to impact your day-to-day functioning, right? So if you are have if you have an anxiety disorder or a panic disorder, for instance, it may be difficult for you to do your work, to go to social settings, hang out with friends. Um, it really impacts your life versus when you are feeling stressed or just anxious feelings. You know, you may in that moment not be able to do those things, but once that passes, you're able to recover and continue on with the things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would say more recently since the pandemic, mm-hmm. I have been seeing a lot more people coming in with stress, anxiety, yeah. panic disorder that has not been diagnosed before. You know, we, people are coming, young people, 21, 30, mm-hmm. coming in with, you know, chest pain and shortness of breath. And I'm like, you, yeah. you know, no problems with their lungs, but it's right. You know, once everything else is ruled out, it's like, well, I think that this is a lot of anxiety. Like what's going on in your life? Who do you want to talk to? You know, like we have yeah. resources for you. So yeah, I feel like I've been seeing a lot more people with, with panic disorder, with anxiety that need help. Yeah. That needs intervention, right? It's like, this is, you know, and it might be exacerbated. I think a lot of people can manage their, they might have an anxiety disorder, but they've, um, they have a support system. They've, they've developed coping skills. They've developed, you know, other ways to navigate that. And then sometimes all it takes is a a big disruption, like a pandemic to exacerbate those symptoms. And all of a sudden, you know, the tools that I used to uh, use that worked are no longer working. Right. And we were all isolated for so long. So that definitely can increase that response uh, to those feelings. Mm-hmm. Which also brings me to a point where you talk about, I think this might have been like the second chapter, but you talk about resilience and how, you know, like there's certain people with or certain communities, racial communities mm-hmm. that, that experience more resilience and may not even know that they're experiencing resilience. And mm-hmm. can, maybe if you can give people just like a, a definition of what resilience means or how you said it in the in the book. Yeah, I think about it as like our ability to bounce back, right? So if something happens, you know, we can obviously feel your feelings. Those are all valid. It's like, how are you able to kind of bounce back and move on from whatever it was that happened? I mean, I I utilize, I think about trauma and how resilient we've been with trauma. But I also think that the term resilience has been used against us in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. uh, to further oppression and to further just not making changes uh, to benefit people in power, right? So, oh, we don't need to change that. You know, they're so resilient. Look at how strong they are. Look at all they've overcome. And then we also feel like, okay, we have to be strong. We have to have resilience, you know? And resilience can be a huge 
indicator to, you know, overcome traumatic situations, to overcome, you know, all of life's stressors. And it's a great tool to have in our belts. And it's okay to, you know, feel like you need time to recover from something, you know, to actually go through and process the feelings and experiences that you had. And it doesn't make you any less strong or any less mm. or make you weaker, you know, and I think that is often a feeling of uh, within our community that I've seen a lot, you know, if you're not bouncing back right away, then you, there's something wrong with you. Mm, yeah, which makes me think about, and I think you also said this in the book about uh, Black women and pain tolerance. Um, mm-hmm. I know, you know, within the medical community, that's a big thing of Black women experiencing less pain or being stronger yeah. to experience, have a, have a higher pain threshold. Threshold. That's not necessarily the case. So there's certain doctors that don't give the appropriate pain medicines because they feel like Black women can tolerate the the pain that they're going through, even though it's like 10 out of 10 pain. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And that's often, you know, sometimes intentional, but I think a lot of times it is like this implicit bias, right? It's like they've, you know, through their own experiences or even like through their programs, um, you know, for school have just internalize this idea that we're so strong um, or that even like not believing us, like that we're lying in some sense, Mm -hmm. like it must not be that bad, you know? Um, So even just not validating what we're saying is an issue. Mm. And I actually remember a a case where I was in residency, saw a black woman who had a history of sickle cell anemia. And that is, you know, it's a chronic condition that can affect Mm-hmm. different parts mm-hmm. of the body and can cause a lot of pain. So there's certain, uh, I remember being on the team and, and labeling or other people within the team labeling this patient as a drug seeker that she wanted to, wow. um, that she wanted to, you know, get the the opiates and the oxycodone and, and different things yep. like that because she's a drug seeker. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, she actually has pain. She's like, she's right. like writhing in pain. And we're not necessarily doing much about it. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Those that. stereotypes, right? Like, well, if they are coming here and seeking these particular types of drugs, they must be a drug addict or like selling drugs or something. It's like, hmm, it could be just simple, right? What is it, Occam's razor? No, they actually <laughs> just have sickle cell, which we know causes a lot of pain, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's just not being well controlled. Mm-hmm. Um. Yes. I mean, I can go on and on about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So in your workbook, you did bring up a lot of a through line theme of music. You talk about what are what about your friends? Trigger what? uh, Say my (laughs) name, say my name, walk it out. Um, Can you discuss that choice and your connection between music and um, healing in our community? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that. It's um it's something <laughs> music is huge, huge in my life. My dad, I didn't grow up with him. Um he's passed away, but um he was a Jamaican reggae singer um and lived in Jamaica my whole life. And um uh, anytime he was on tour, my mom would take me down. I'm from um the Galita area. My mom would take us to Long Beach or to LA to see him in concert. So that was from a very young age. And then I was in marching band and concert band. I played flute. So I'm very like big on music and it's definitely like a big part of my self-care. Like you can catch me at a concert. I would go every day if I could. I love concerts (laughs) and festivals. Um, I love it so much. So, you know, as I was writing the title headings, I was like, oh, this would be good. And I know that within our community, one of the reasons why we've been so resilient, if you go even back to 
you know, um, to slavery, uh, to civil rights, like music has been one of the things that has really saved us, has connected us, you know, has been super healing for us, whether it's, um, you know, instrumentals or the lyrics, vocalizations, it's been very connected in our community for generations, for centuries, yeah. even prior to the slavery, we go back to our, uh, to Africa, right? Um, so we, it's, it's definitely part of how we heal, how we connect, how we communicate with each other. So I just thought it would be fun to make some of the titles in the book, um, you know, certain titles of songs and see if people caught it. <laughs> yes, I like that. <laughs> so let's move on to trauma. Trauma being a huge buzzword that people use a lot these days, but I don't think many people understand the true definition of trauma and how it impacts not only mental health, but also physical health. So can you shed some light on this topic of trauma? So I'm a certified trauma and resilience practitioner, clinical. Uh, So that means that I've been trained to work with youth and families um, that have experienced traumatic events and help them with healing. And I experienced trauma of my own as a child, as many of like majority of many people do in this country. Uh, So when I was in graduate school and I learned kind of more of like the definition of trauma, I didn't even realize what I had experienced was trauma, you know. And so I'm really big on advocating for people to understand the definitions and really it's about the experience and emotions that you have after an event. And what I mean by that is two people can go through the same type of event. So let's say... Let's say it's two children, even in the same family that experienced uh, physical abuse, right? One child might, you know, completely shut down. You might see behaviors at school. You might see them starting to use um, drugs and or alcohol. You know, they have that kind of response to that event. The other student or the other child may uh, completely excel. They might push into school. They might, um, you know, start a club at their school. You know, they might be seeking out other uh, sources of support and be completely fine, so to speak, right? And so it for that, it's not the event of that physical abuse. It was how those two children responded to it. So I think a lot of people will say something like, oh, you know, I went through this particular experience and I was fine. So you, you're not experiencing trauma. So again, it's great that you were able to respond in that way. You know, there's a lot of factors that can help uh, people respond to trauma in a more, um, you know, resilient kind of positive way than for others, having a support system, not having any mental illness factors within, within yourself or within your family. And so I think a lot of people just don't understand that it's not about us telling somebody what was traumatic for them. If they're telling me that it was traumatic and that's how they were feeling, then that's what we're going to go with. Mm, Yeah. And since we're talking about youth, um, for the youth that we feel are responding negatively to a traumatic experience, how, I guess, do we get the help that they need? Yeah. Uh, So in my former role as the director of mental health, I um, started a trauma-informed schools initiative approach uh, that all 24 of my schools um, were implementing. It started like four four years ago. And so a big part of it was raising awareness for um, teachers and leaders, as well as for families about what trauma is, how it manifests in the classroom. So one of the things um, you might have, I'm sure you've heard of because you're in the field, but one of so your listeners might have heard of is uh, the fight or flight response, right? And what that is, um, is it's really like our response to a stressful or traumatic event. So I share, you know, what that can look like in the classroom. And I, a lot of teachers 
don't understand that if a child has experienced trauma, there are trauma triggers that are trauma reminders that can come up in the classroom that will put them right back into that fear, into that state of, um, you know, needing to get to safety, right? And that can be a sound that reminds them of their traumatic experience. I think of if they've experienced gun violence and we hear, I don't know, like um, like a car backfire or something, like that can bring up those feelings of that traumatic yeah. experience. Or, you know, if they are experiencing, you know, verbal abuse at home and a teacher is really upset and yells at them in that moment, they can go right back to that traumatic event. And so that can look like, you know, with fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, fighting obviously is fighting or aggressive behaviors or even being combative verbally. Um, flight would be like getting the heck out of there, leaving the classroom, um, you know, trying to get away from that situation. Freezing is just becoming numb and like kind of not really knowing what to do. And then the lesser known one is the fawn response. Um, and what I realized is like, I was the fawn response um, that, you know, it's more of like, how do I appease the person that's stressing me out? Like, what can I do to present myself as you know, good or as some, mm. somebody that, you know, you're not going to want to harm. So let me be like a perfectionist, you know, that kind of thing. We see a lot of those manifestations in classrooms and um, for teachers to understand it and not take it personally, not like, what is the punishment going to be? Yeah. Instead of being like that, it's like, well, what's going on with you? Like, well, let's get to the bottom of this so that we can provide supports rather than like, here's a consequence for what you just did. Yeah. And so is that getting your child in to see a, a clinical social worker or is it like getting them into therapy or I guess yeah. Yeah, as a, a school age child? Sometimes. So, you know, my big goal with my program was um, to do a lot of prevention because a lot of kids, you know, there's mm -hmm. levels of, of intervention, right? And so for some kids, you know, making sure that all of the teachers know the importance of, of strong relationships um, and being that one person in that, you know, I always say, say to teachers, your goal is to be that one person in their life that is irrationally crazy about them. Like no matter what they do, like you're going to be there for them. Um, we want them to have many of those people. But for you, like that is your goal, because that in and of itself, when we, um, I think it was Harvard that did a study on, you know, for kids that have experienced trauma, what was the like the biggest determining factor about whether they um, had more of a negative response or able to kind of have resilience. And it was having at least one adult that was a consistent and supportive adult in their life. And I'm like, mm -hmm. wow, if we have like such an opportunity in schools for us to be that person. And hopefully they yeah. have other people in their lives like that as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really big. So pushing for relationships. Um, I have a mindfulness curriculum that the kids get once or twice a day, all students that teachers lead. So, you know, filling up their toolboxes with those types of things. We have calm spaces in the classroom. So if they are you know, we do lessons for st all students so they understand, like, if they're feeling um, elevated emotions, they can put up a peace sign and they can go to the calm space and mm. color or listen to music, right? So those are, like, our first-tier preventative um, interventions. And then for the kids who, like, that isn't enough, then we can do, like, group counseling or maybe we're going to mm. refer to our uh, licensed social workers or to an outside agency. So, like, if we have this baseline, we can really target the kids that really need additional support instead of all kids needing because we don't have enough, right? There's not enough of a um, therapist um, to provide treatment for everyone. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we're really targeting the kids that really truly need it. Yeah. Man, I wish I had a, one of those spaces. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I school, put up a peace sign and go color right. music. Okay. And that's what I tell teachers. I'm like, 
we have to lead trainings and things. Sometimes there are two hours, sometimes there are eight hours. And I'm like, when I'm leading trainings for you all, I see some of you like standing up in the back, you go up to the bathroom, like you do different things. Um, and I'm not like, you know, here's your pass or here's the thing that you need. Well, you didn't ask me for permission. You're being able to regulate your needs. Kids need to like, why would we think that kids don't need to do the same thing? Right. So yeah. think about like how, what are your needs during the day? And um, think about kids needing even more of that. <laughs> Mm, yeah. And I asked that same question before we move on to the next question. I asked the same question about adults. So if we mm-hmm. see an, uh, you know, a friend or family member that needs more supportive services, since they're not in the, the class setting, um, right. <laughs> how can we encourage them to do that mm-hmm. from your perspective? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be challenging, you know, if you are noticing that a friend or a family member isn't, you know, functioning the way that they used to, you know, you're noticing that their mood, you know, maybe is lower. I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge that you're seeing that and to come from a place of just support and understanding, you know, and really with an adult, you have to, they have to be ready to seek those services. And so for them to just know that you're there and that you have noticed those changes, I think can be a really big step because they may be suffering in silence, right? Not really feeling like they can talk to anybody about these things. Once you kind of open that door, I always ask, um, even like with my friends, I have to take off my therapist cap sometimes and just say, you know, like, how can I be supportive of you? Like, what do you need? Um, I think sometimes we make assumptions about what somebody would need based on what we need, you know, and some people need space. Other people, like, I need to be surrounded by a lot of people. That's going to help me feel better. So really asking them what they need. And then um, there are a ton of resources. uh, If they are wanting to seek um, services, you can dial um, 741-741 and text HOME. uh, And they will provide you with resources in your area for mental health services. Um, They also will just kind of be a a person to to chat with. If you're like, I don't really feel like I trust or feel like I have people in my corner to talk about my feelings like that. Um, They have um, trained uh, professionals that can kind of be a sounding board for you and even let you know like, hey, I think it might be a good idea to seek some services for yourself. I know NAMI, N-A-M-I, has a lot of resources online uh, for finding um, mental health therapists, uh, crisis response, you know, uh, drug and alcohol treatment. Um, So there are, the good thing is there are a ton of resources out there, I think. um, And in my book, I do have a a list of like different um, specific to the BIPOC community, how to Mm -hmm. get access to BIPOC therapists, because that can also be a challenge. Um, There's, Mm -hmm. I think the recent statistic was of all psychologists in the country, only 4% of them are Black. Back, which is 4%. not a lot. Wow. 4%. That's, and that's psychologists. You know, I think in, um, for social workers, there's a lot of social workers that are Black, but there aren't a lot that are licensed like myself because of gatekeeping, right? So the test in and of itself is not designed with us in mind. And they actually recently had to release finally the, after decades, they had to release the results based on demographics. So the our you know, licensing board had been withholding that information because just like we thought, there's a huge discrepancy with white, specifically white women getting their license and um, BIPOC folks, specifically black folks getting their license. So there's issues even within our, within this practice of getting licensed because yeah. of, you know, bias and all of that. And what we've talked about earlier. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, I will put some of those resources in the description of the podcast. So you'll be able to reference that if you want to. So to kind of close out at the end of your workbook, 
uh, or you end the workbook with a call to action on reclaiming self-care. So what do you mean by this? And I I do want to say that self-care has been pretty... I've talked a lot about self-care on the podcast. I actually just had a OBGYN talking about self-care as lifestyle. So I feel like self-care heard that. <laughs> is also another big buzzword that we've been yes. using. But yeah, what do you mean by the reclaiming self-care? Yeah, so I think, you know, I have been really excited to see more information about self-care. It's always great when the word is getting out about these topics like mental health or trauma or self-care. Um, but what I have noticed on the flip side, as I've done, you know, workshops for for parents that are, you know, primarily Black or Latinx um, within my schools, is that you know I don't have time for that. That sounds like a white people thing. That's uh, like a rich people thing. And I'm like, no, no. Like, let's go back to our origins of like where this self care term came from, because you know I, I see on Instagram this quote from Audre Lord all the time. Like, self care is not self indulgence, right? You see that like with a beautiful little design and people share it or it's on stickers, but they often cut out the second part of that statement, which is self-care is not um, self-indulgence. It's an act of political warfare. I'm like, ooh, okay, well, what does that oh, mean? Yeah. So, you know, as she was doing all of the civil rights work and feminist work, fighting for our rights that we have today, she recognized how draining it can be to be constantly on the front lines trying to fight for our rights or navigating these systems. And so she was really big. Um, and even the Black Panther Party was really big on self-care and community care. So doing things to like fill our cups so that we still had the energy to fight this fight. And I'm like, oh, that is so powerful to me. So to me, reclaiming the self-care term is like, no, this is not just massages and bubble baths. Yes, <laughs> you can do that if that's your yeah. self-care. But it can all it can be really anything that's going to fill your cup. You know, for me, like if I have the day off sometimes and my daughter's at school, sometimes I want to clean my house. That is my self-care because I feel like I'm not as stressed out when my house isn't cluttered. Right. Um, It might be like taking a walk or reading a book or hanging out with a friend, whatever it is um, that is self-care. I really think of self-care as self-love and action, right? Self-love is how you think about yourself, like in, inside your mind, inside your heart. And self-care is like actually taking action to show mm. yourself that you love yourself. Yeah. Um, and it helps. It helps with our mental health for sure. And, you know, I definitely don't always practice what I preach, but I've been, my intentions for 2023 was to really get back into filling my cup. And I give a lot to others and my family, and I need to also like pour back into myself so I have more to give. (laughs) Yes, yes. I fill you with that. And, you know, self-care has been something that I have slowly come to enjoy and make a part of my life because, yeah, seeing patients on a regular basis, mm-hmm. um, um, seeing people that, you know, want, I want to give, but, you know, also can take from me. Um, yeah. I feel like, yes. And for this is for anyone who is out there and is within the service industry, you definitely need to also. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. With the or even like, you know, parents, massages, but also, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think about parents are a great example of like, you know, service, you know, adjacent, right? You're like, you have to prioritize your kids often. And especially when they're younger, it's hard to find the time. And so 
you know, I, I always, for parents that I've found that are stressed out, who are like, I don't have, I can't, you know, go get my nails done for an hour. I can't go do whatever it is for you, like a walk, you know, it's, you know, finding that, that 10 minutes a day, that's just your time. Like whether that's like locking yourself in the bathroom, that's fine. I've done that before, <laughs> you know, being in your car and listening to your favorite song and just having a moment, you know, like that is, that's better than nothing. And like, hopefully slowly you can build up to other things that, um, that you want to, to work on. Um, in the workbook, I have, you know, a self-care audit because self-care can come in many different forms, whether it's, you know, your personal self-care, like your, you know, things that you're doing for yourself to better yourself or like hanging out with friends, you know, your, um, your mental health, physical health, you know, your professional self-care. How are you uh, making sure that you're taking a lunch at work or taking the breaks if you're supposed to do that at your job? You know, so thinking about doing an audit of like, what are the things that I do and um, giving you an idea of what self-care can look like. And then there's also a plan in there so that you can really track how you're taking care of yourself and work towards um, improving that and setting goals for yourself. Okay. So do you actually have a, um, I mean, I know you are online, but do you have mm-hmm. a community? Well, maybe, or, well, let me ask about the black <laughs> mental health workbook. Do you have a community of people that will, you know, that you want to bring together that are all doing the workbook together? Yeah, I'm actually thinking about doing that um, because I've had several people ask me and I'm like, you know, when I wrote the book, I was just like, here, here it is out in the world. And I didn't, you know, want to put all my eggs in one basket. But I thought about doing something. Um, I live in Los Angeles, you know, doing some kind of workshops in um, starting in February, some of them in person because I miss in-person stuff and I love facilitating things in person. So yeah, if you're following me on Social Work Sage, um, as I start, you know, getting uh, more interest in these things. It would, I'm thinking about doing some in person and then also some um, online um, support groups so that we can kind of work through some of these things together. Okay. Um, not as your therapist, but as like a support uh, to help yeah. you navigate these things. <laughs> yes. Making the distinction. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I feel like Yay. we've had such a fruitful conversation about black mental health women's health or black women's health yeah so I feel like it's been a great conversation so I thank you for coming on the yeah. podcast thank you so much for having me I, I really appreciate the space and I appreciate the work that you're doing I love learning more about you know my body as an adult woman I'm like why don't I know these things so I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that too <laughs> and just let everyone know how they can stay in contact with you how they mm-hmm. can follow you yes um, how they can so get you the can... book the workbook yeah oh yes um so my book um is available on Amazon so you can um, type in my name, Jasmine Lamite, um, or you can type in the Black Mental Health Workbook, and um, it's available for purchase there. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at socialworksage, and you can go to my website uh, at socialworksage.com um, if you want to work together or have any inquiries about you know supporting your organization or um, anything like that. But I'm available on all platforms. Okay. Well, again, thank you for being on. And thank you everyone for joining me for another episode of the Viva La Volva podcast. If you like the podcast, subscribe, let your friends and family know, because I am bringing you nothing but information about women's health, about mental health, about so many aspects that are important to our lives. So 
Thank you for listening. Bye.